All righty. Welcome. Welcome to Know Your Roles. We're here for another week. Absolutely. Everybody keep your mask on. We, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Wear masks, stay inside, social distance. We're, uh, we're in the middle of it. But uh, yeah, we got a nice, fun show for you today. We have writer, comedian, friend Josh Gondelman on, formerly of last week's night with John Oliver, and now writes on Desis and Miro. And we talked to him about that and about a lot of other stuff. And we play a pretty fun game where we compare Tribe Called Quest records to Seinfeld characters, <laughs> two things that you know you might not think have a lot in common, but we will convince you otherwise. I don't know why I'm pointing at the screen. I'm using like my <laughs> hands to speak. Nobody can see me. Ah, it happens. No, it was it was a good little good little talk, and Josh was into it. So you guys are going to enjoy listening to that and him being on the show. Yeah, first we're going to do some bar talk, and then we'll get into that stuff with uh, with Josh. But George, what's on your bar? So I wanted to go into just a little bit, a sneaky little bit about the Paul George contract, because right before we got on the air, I was taking a shower. It's funny, I take a shower for Zoom calls. And my phone is like popping up. I'm listening to the call question preparation for our our, uh, our podcast with Josh Gondelman. And I see that Paul George has just signed a uh, max deal for five years, $224 million. Like that happened right before we started recording. And uh, you just broke that news to me. Yeah, yeah, just now. <laughs> A max deal with the Clippers. He signed a max, max deal with the Clippers. So they, I guess, they're not going to wait till next year to uh, because he had the opt out clause at the end of uh, the end of the contract for at the end of twenty twenty one. There was an opt out, so there was a world in which both him and Kawhi could opt out. Um, uh, I've never been. Uh, let me backtrack. I do like Paul George, but not as my maybe number two player. Maybe it's like my number three. I've always said that I was like, if I can do some of the things that you've done, then you can't be that great. And the moment you hit the side of the backboard, I, I just, you just, you just, whatever. It's like when Nathan Peterman threw like five interceptions, I can throw five interceptions. That's crazy. But, um, but the shout out to Paul George, he signed that five year, $224 million. I have to maybe make, make sure to check, but it's 200, 200 plus. Don't have that thought too much though, because if you do, then you end up like Nate Robinson. Who's like, oh, I could do this. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it's exactly. No, you can't, bro. Sorry. Well, I mean, it's like boxing. Nobody can do that shit. There's a reason why. No. Like, the moment. The, you, yeah. It's, it's called a science for a reason. It's called a yeah. profession. Like, you don't just. Yeah, that. Yeah, you should have never been out. No, no. I was like, but uh, the, I think that my only my only beef is just, uh, had I had an NBA vote like three or four years ago, I probably would have voted for a, for an all NBA. Like, uh, because at the time he was like one of the best two-way players in the league. The problem that was like he's just how he comes off in interviews is why he, he kind of drives me crazy is uh, the fact that he's like uh, the what he said about Doc Rivers and like they kind of used me wrong and they probably did and they probably didn't. But who knows? But he's got a history of saying dumb shit <laughs> in different to different fan bases in Indiana. It was like, I want to win here. I want to next, you know, what? I'm out. It was like in Oklahoma, like uh, he signed that deal to stay in Oklahoma. And it was like next, you know, what? it was like, I want to get fucking out. So I just don't I don't love the the, the, the Paul George experience. He's kind of like, for me, he's kind of like an ex-girlfriend that like, that's like, you don't know how to quit her, but she's, there's something about her that you like, you kind of enjoy, but at the end of the day, she kind of drives you mildly crazy. So uh, I'm hoping it works out for him. The The deal is incredible. And maybe they know something that we don't know. And maybe Paul George is to follow, but as of, I mean, uh, Kawhi Leonard is to follow, but as of right now, right before I got on this podcast, five years, $224 million. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> That's insane. I mean, look, it's the, 
when you have to do it like if you're the clippers like you don't really have a choice you you made the move you you sold your stake you know what i mean like when you got Kawhi and you got paul george like this that's your squad for the five years you know what i mean if they leave after you mortgage your future when you yeah. got them because yeah. like uh because you traded all your picks this is this no rose podcast we're huge sga fans and that's, that's what that's what you get instead shout out to sga we love sga on, on the no yeah well imagine if Kawhi played with him instead of with uh paul george but but i think paul george is incredible i think he's, he's great. a great great player but yeah it's un it's it's unknown whether he can even be the number two guy at this point. And uh, as to your point and giving them a max D yeah, it's uh, yeah. The Clippers, they looked like, I mean, when they, when they made all those moves, I was the first person to be like, I mean, not the first person, but I was one of the many crowd of people to be like, that's incredible. That's one of the best teams ever assembled. I mean, just the defense alone on paper, I was like, they're going to win every game and they're going to steamroll everyone. And we know that that didn't happen. And now they're in like a real dangerous spot, right? Like they, they got rid of doc and they resign him. Like now, like, could you imagine? Cause, cause Kawhi is up after this year or next. No, year? they're, they're, they they're both opt out clauses. We're at the end of the summer. So at the end of 2021, so he has, a, but Kawhi has an opt out this, this next season, correct? They, they both did. Okay. Um, but so like if Kawhi opts out, and now you got Paul George, like as your main guy, you're fucked. You know what I mean? Like, hopefully, they they have a good season. Hopefully, they can say. I just would like to see them on the court together with the whole team because I still do think that, like, you know, those two guys together are going to be really. Are, that's that's like that's a solid team because of the fact that they are two way players. You know, they're. I mean, that's those are two of the best defenders in the league on one team. Not to mention all the other defenders they got on that team. Patrick Beverly. I know they traded. What was the move they made? They traded Har or Harold left to sign with the Clippers, and then Harold's in a Harold's in a. Uh, I mean, the, the Lakers. Sign for the Lakers. Sign for the Lakers, and then didn't who did the Clippers sign as a big man? Um, uh, shit. Probably should have done whatever. that. We'll look at, whatever. whatever. It's not important. Uh, we'll look it up. But uh, but yeah, Paul George. Good for him. I mean, counter. For, you know. Do you know it's funny when I think of Paul George and I? I've actually always kind of liked him because I love players who are from the non-power five con uh, conferences that make it like make a dent in the league. So I love Paul George and I love Kawhi Leonard and I love uh, I love uh, 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 D up in um, Portland, Lillard, Weber State, Damian Lillard. I love because those guys are from, not from like from North Carolina. They're not from Kansas. Like they're not from like the their mega conferences or the mega schools. Where did Paul George go? Paul George went to Fresno State. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, so like I'm always gonna, as somebody who went to a mid major, I'm always gonna have a, a little little affinity, a little love for those guys who were drafted from the ten to the ten to like the early, like the late, like uh, lottery to like the early, like first round picks. It was like and it became stars because because it became stars because it's like yeah. they, I feel like they had to work a little harder just to get there. The uh, it just seems like it's been a billion years that Indiana was challenging Miami to go to the the represent the east and that paul george is long gone and the injuries the leg injury which is gruesome both arm injuries it just it just seems like a, a a crazy jump for a guy who i think is on the other end of it but if you're la you just mortgage your future and you're trying to 
trying to get some people who are like a part of that fan base. It doesn't matter what they do. They're ne- nobody's going to ever be like, yo, the Clippers. That's a Lakers town. It's a Lakers town. So it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I want to see him do well because I do enjoy watching him play when he plays well. I just, his, his interviews are fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> Is there, yeah. His interviews are, are bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, cause he just, he just says dumb shit. Yeah. He's yeah. He, yeah. Agreed. What's in your bar? All right. I got a bunch of shit. I'm just going to run through as fast as possible. Uh, first, I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge that we are coming to you from Canarse and Munse Lenape land. It's important to acknowledge that, especially coming off a holiday, Thanksgiving, that a lot of us celebrated, that the narratives around it have a lot to do with indigenous erasure and and uh, a lot of those things. So native, native-land.ca, if you want to look up what native land you are on, if you live in the states you are on native land because it's all native land it was and was stolen and that's true for a lot of countries but anyway and if that's something that you don't know a lot about i would love to plug a podcast this land which is rebecca nagel's podcast and she rebecca nagel is a a writer and advocate and she's a citizen of cherokee nation and this land is really really good uh it's almost like a true crime podcast it's about the the court case in oklahoma from earlier this year uh about the land rights and the treaty rights and um you may have seen some of those things it's very interesting it's also just a really good primer on indigenous issues and you know indigenous culture and a lot of things that most most Americans who are products of the the public school system, as myself and George are, didn't learn in school. So it's really interesting. I recommend it. This land. It's very good. I also want to say somewhat along that note, we are entering the holiday season here. And I just wanted to talk about shopping for one second, if you are someone that's doing shopping. Hopefully we are all kind of, you know, realizing our relationship to how we spend our money and how it matters and where we spend our money. Um, and, you know, in our efforts to avoid the big, huge corporations like Amazon and things like that, I just want to give a plug for buying local, buying local, buying black, buying indigenous. It's very important. It's something that, especially in these last six months, uh, there's so many resources for, you can do a very quick, uh, search of, as to where you are of like the black and indigenous businesses in your area and nationally. Again, like I said, if you're going to be buying stuff, buy black, buy indigenous, buy local. And uh, yeah, gift cards, get gift cards. If you're, especially for like, I don't know if your restaurant is doing this, George, but a lot of restaurants like gift cards are something that really help them because you can buy them, you know, you give them, giving them all the money then. And then like, you know, you'll get it later and it, it helps businesses get an in, initial boost you know it really helps and uh yeah so those are my quick little plugs I also uh i watched jojo rabbit the other day the second time i've seen it saw it once in theaters second here have you seen it i know you had in a while back but have you seen it no i haven't seen it is it good it's incredible man it's so good like the second time like i really liked it the first time in theaters i thought it was great one of the best movies of that year one of my favorites and then we watched it hillary hasn't seen it and we watched it the other day and it's incredible it affected me as much if not more the second time and uh yeah even better the second time i'd say 
Jojo Rabbit. It's great. All right, that's my bar. We uh, we're gonna go into Josh. We're gonna talk to Josh and play the uh, the little game with him. We'll try Bend uh, Seinfeld Love Fest. So uh, I think that's gonna be fun, fun for everyone. So here here is that. Enjoy. Hey, how's it going? Yo, <laughs> what's going on, man? Good to see you. Good to see you as well. We were just talking about uh about nice guy and nice people, and you're like on the top of that list. So, <laughs> oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Absolutely, because those two words and the word comedian don't always go together. <laughs> <laughs> I would say not always. I think that's fair. Yeah. I also like that you prepped uh, prepped for this show for all of us by wearing a shirt that says "Fun Guy." Uh, yeah, my Kawhi Leonard New Balance hoodie. <laughs> Of course. What it do, baby? What it do, baby? Exactly. My every day after lunch, because we're all home all the time, my wife brings our. She, we have a fat little pug, and my wife puts her up on the couch, and they eat. They split an apple together, and they call it apple time. Which, like, I always think of Mike uh, Camerlengo's like fake profile of Kawhi, where it talked about how he just ordered all those apples at a restaurant. <laughs> I could see like that. It's it's hysterical that like his shirt. It just says "fun guy." Fun guy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so funny to me. I and love like it. you can hear him saying it. Like I'm, I'm like, a fun guy. I'm a fun guy. And then that so laugh that came right after that is just like <laughs> exactly. I can't. Yeah. Exactly right. Josh, are you a fan of the Kawhi Leonard basketball shoes? <sighs> I don't love them. <laughs> I don't love them. I think the um. The Jolly Ranchers ones are like fun, but not super wearable. But I did almost buy the Jolly Rancher like slides because I don't have any good sandals. And I was like, oh, those are fun. Like, and, and for a sandal, like they don't need to be something you would like wear to work or whatever. Right. We are we're gonna get into uh sneakers in a, a little bit, but um Great. first off, we are Dave and I are super excited to have you on the Oh, thank you for having me. Uh of course we I, I've known you for for a, at least a, a decade. But I, yeah, I heard about you in 2010. Oh my gosh, I apologize. Yeah, because like you were the uh, you won Laughing Skull, and there was a lot of New Yorkers that went down there, and I was just shocked that some dude from Boston had won some comedy <laughs> festival in Atlanta, Georgia. But then my buddies from New York didn't win, and I saw you. Of course, I was like, yeah. And then uh, of course the joke that I grabbed it that I thought was just hysterical was the uh, I'm gonna butcher shit out of this a bit about being in Boston and parades. Oh, thank and you. About a better parade butt fucking the other parades i just just that <laughs> just killed me i was like yeah i can see how that guy will want to stand up oh yeah i there's a joke about how in boston for years gay people couldn't march in the saint patrick's day parade and uh and that i think when what was the solution one year was that they allow a separate they allow them to march, but like separately behind the like main St. Patrick's day parade. And to me, that's just like, it was just such a dumb homophobic thing that, yeah. then the joke was just like people, the parade would go, go by. And then like 30 minutes later or whatever, like a mile behind a way better parade would come by. <laughs> um, thank you. That was, I, I haven't told that in forever, but I love that. that joke. No, it's, it was, it always, it always cracked me up. The, um, so as I was doing research for 
our our podcast and doing research about you. Again, I have known you for 10 years. There's I learned quite a few things about you that I did not know. Um, uh, you are from Stoneham, Massachusetts. I am. And uh, I'm waiting for you to be, uh, I guess let me preface this, like how long do you think it will be before you eclipse Nancy Kerrigan as the most famous Ooh. Stoneham, Massachusetts person? I think I'm, I would put myself maybe at third. <laughs> I, Nancy Kerrigan, obviously top of the heap, Olympic medalist. Sure. I defer to her success and expertise forever. Second most famous person from Stoneham, Massachusetts, a town of 23,000 people. I would say Mario Cantone. Yes. Oh. Yeah. And then maybe me. Then you, okay. I mean, that's not a, that's a pretty good top three. It's not bad. We actually, someone that I went to middle school with, but then went to a different high school, um, played, he w- played in the NFL for a while. Um, so he was very successful. Um, shout out to, to Jonathan Goff. That is correct. Yeah. He was a, a linebacker for the, played for the Giants. For he played for the New York Giants, born yeah. in 1977, then class of, class of 95, I believe is what it no, is. No, he's young. Is he's he is he is he younger than that? He's than that? My age, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Just making yeah. sure. Can you keep on your Stoneham Mass uh, trivia over here? Stoneham Mass factory of uh, comedians and linemen. I tried. I tried to represent. I tried to represent well because I I have like I have hometown pride. Like I want to represent well for my hometown, and I like I'm in touch with a lot of people from home. I feel like some people, like some people in comedy, moved to New York and they just like they like snap their old cell phone in half and throw it in the East river and like never talk to people from home. But like, I, I have a lot of, you know, a lot of friends and acquaintances still that I'm, I'm like, I try not to, to disparage and, and to show due respect to Nancy Kerrigan, Mario Cantone and Jonathan Goff. <laughs> Where, how far away from Boston is Stoneham? It's like eight miles Northeast. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's one of the, I went to college in Boston, but I forget exactly. Cause I've said this before, but it's like, you know, it's like a bunch of small towns Yeah. and you don't know where you are. <laughs> like well, you will step on one block oh, totally. in a totally different town technically. Yep. It's um, so it's, if you take 93 out of the city, okay. it's like 10, 15 so it's, minutes. It's Boston basically. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, very suburban. Like, I think when people are like, all right, are you from Boston, Boston? It's like, well, I lived there after school, but, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up in the city. But, like, it is, it's also not, some people will be like, I grew up in Boston, and you're like, where? And they're like, Providence. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm yeah. from Chicago, and it doesn't really bother me anymore. I don't care. But when I was in college in Boston, everybody who would be like, I'm from Chicago, I'd be, like, so excited. And then they're from an hour away. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, 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 yeah. It's the same way being from like uh, DC, like for example, I'm from Northern Virginia. I would never say that I'm from DC in Northern Virginia because people call you out. Right. It's like, I'm from DC. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but here you can say it and people go, oh, okay, cool. No follow-up questions. <laughs> I got to know it. The uh, I've always been jealous of you comics that started out so young. You started out at, at 19 in college. I was 19, yeah. Brandis, is that correct? Brandeis. Brandeis. Yeah. I was like, just like, I needed to fail, like at a bunch of other things before I got to do stand up to fail at that first. What was it like <laughs> starting out at 19? Because it's just such an odd age to go, you know what? I think I'm going to go on stage and see if I can make this work. Cause that just seems yeah. strange to me. It was, well, I mean, like it was um, tough because I think it took me a while to, to, really lock in with audiences like a like adult audiences um 
because I was so young and I, you know, I was in school still. And I, the reason that I started was I had a friend, like a friend from growing up who started doing open mics and our mutual friends like bullied me into it. They're like, well, Joe's doing it. Why aren't you doing it? Like you talk about want to do it. Joe's just doing it. So do it. So I, that's like how I got started for real. And I really, uh, liked I, I liked doing it at first and I think I got you know got better little by little but it definitely I mean like I don't think I really fully clicked until I was like in my 30s and I I don't think I think I'm I still feel like a work in progress but I really think that like when I got into the relationship that I'm in now with my with my wife Maris like I think just like being kind of a like twerpy Jewy weirdo on the road, just like having one thing like, oh, I'm in this relationship, I'm engaged, I'm married, um, helped me on the road. Whereas, like, I wasn't just inventing stuff or talking about like a mishmash of people I dated in the past. It just was like so grounding for my stand up. So, I think it really took me like a while to lock into a groove where like I felt credible headlining and being like oh i have an hour's worth of things mm-hmm. to say to a bunch of strangers you know that's interesting because george and i before you got on were we were going over some of your uh achievements um and and saying how, about how like you know i mean uh george and i who have experience in comedy and and film and and that stuff understand but a lot of people mm-hmm. don't know that like they see like emmys and and staff writing positions and what and they don't know like the the decade long or whatever of sure. open mics and like, yeah, I mean, it was like 10 years. Let me see if that's right. It was almost 10. No, I started doing stand up in, tw- in 2004. And then I got my first like staff writing position, I think at the end of 2014, but like I, but it didn't start until the beginning of 2015. Cause it was like, I knew between seasons at last week tonight. So it was like, yeah, like, 10 years to get that that staff writing position but there was like obviously a lot of stuff in between that felt like exciting and good and like progress but it def i definitely like did not um well i and i was in boston until 2011 so like there wasn't there like that kind of work doesn't really exist there you know what i mean like i was doing stand-up and i was like trying to write a little bit here and there but i just didn't see people around me doing like the comics were like oh you do stand up and you get great at stand up because there wasn't that much like writing television film that that you could do as a comedy writer so yeah it took it took a, a while and, and you know in a way that like i kind of i'm like not you know i'm not mad at it now but like at the time i think you know i did 7 years of stand up including 3 years like while i was still in college and then 4 years while i was teaching preschool and then i i moved to new york and then it was like I could feel things like clicking a little faster because I was just around so much more stuff happening. Is the writing something you were honing and working on through standup, like specifically in Boston because there wasn't other outlets or like, were you writing, you know, spec scripts or, or stuff like that? I did a couple like spec scripts and, and just as I was leaving Boston started to submit little freelance stuff here and there to like McSweeney's and whatnot. But it just like, because my peer group was like, my creative peer group was standups. So I was, you know, I was doing occasional live sketch and stuff, but it also was that period just before like everyone could put anything, 
any kind of video online. Like it wasn't not to sound, not to like date myself or, and, and I don't mean this in a cranky way, but like now people can just like make a video from their phone post it to TikTok and have, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people sometimes see it by uh, the evening. And that just like was not how, how technology worked at the time. So it was like, I was doing a lot of live stuff and I wasn't writing enough. I like the, the one thing that I, I think for my career to date that I'm like, Oh, I wish I'd done that a little differently as I wish I'd done more non standup writing in those years, like after college, before I came to New York. But I think, you know, that also it's interesting, like the technology probably has a lot to do with that because just the outlet, Mm -hmm. you know, there's so much content now Mm -hmm. um, that like, I could see, you know, like you just said, there wasn't, there probably wasn't that much of an outlet for that, you know? No, I mean, there were like early web videos and like sketches and stuff, but it wasn't like the way people post like, character videos that are like immediate reactions to something in the news and and you can just do like a professional quality video in like snap of a hand and and not only take the video but upload it and have channels where it like is just like given and delivered to people where that i think was the different thing like youtube was kind of a thing and you could put stuff on youtube but it you had like things had to like more organically or through like someone finding them and like blowing yeah. them up with like a blog post or something that like it took that to go viral instead of like there there wasn't like this culture of people having their own platform with tens hundreds of thousands of followers you know which i think is like i think that's a really cool thing that a lot of people have at their fingertips now is they can build the, they can build their own following that way which like yeah they can build their own their own network which is yeah. super rad i mean i remember back back then I think I don't remember exactly when they popped, but the Derek comedy guys were the first people that I saw that were like, like um, Dominic Durkis and DC Pearson and Donald Glover were like the first people that I saw that I, that I like recognize as like, Oh, these are, this is a sketch group that makes videos that puts them online. And that's what people know them from. What's weird is like, I remember like when I first interacted with those guys, uh, I think you were there. We saw them at cabin or we saw Donald at cabin and I'm, like seven years old than you, 35. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea who they were. And you were like, oh no, these guys are great from and from YouTube. And oh, wow. that disconnect from that just so that little time frame of age of seven years of not knowing right. something off, off the internet. It just and, just and I'm totally there. Like I, I think there are people that I'm aware of online. And then there are people like um Charlie D'Amelio is or Demillo. One of those two pronunciations, I think, like <laughs> a huge TikTok star that like has her own branded drink at Dunkin' Donuts, and it's like I don't know. I I think she dances, but I'm not sure. And like that's it's not her fault for me not knowing who she is. Like she's so famous, and it's just like me not being in a position where like her work comes hits my radar that often even though she's so famous that i know who she is from buying coffee that's why that's so wild and it's um but yeah there i think there's that discount and it's not you know it's not always age-based but i think tiktok like i felt this way about snapchat too where i was like snapchat is the one that leaves me behind like i'm i'm i committed to doing it and tiktok feels to me like there are like i'm not on it, but I do see TikToks and I recognize like the abundant talent and innovation that's happening there, but it just like doesn't click with me as like a way to consume things. And, I, but it feels a little different. Like Snapchat, I committed to like 
I, I'm not going to learn who is famous on this. I don't know what this is. And then TikTok, I'm like, oh, well, I admit the people doing this are, like, incredibly culturally relevant. Yeah. It doesn't seem that long ago, but if you go back, like, in your, your backstory, like, eight to ten years ago, I mean, Twitter yeah. has all the trappings of the same sort of thing. I mean, like, no doubt. and you're, you were massively huge on Twitter. How did that, that medium never really reach me? How did it reach you, and why did you think you became so successful at it? I so I still am like very active on Twitter. Some would say, including me, too active. <laughs> but I think it was the the reason that it got to me. I think it was like you know I was on Facebook not immediately, but I eventually got on Facebook, and then with Twitter, it was something that I could do. It was a, while I was working at a day job, I was teaching preschool, and it was something where like I could post a tweet at like my lunch break and then check on it later in the day and be like, Ooh, 12 people liked this. And, and it felt like a, um, measurable way to like participate in comedy during the day, which was something I didn't otherwise have access to. And I think I'm much more of a words person than an images person anyway. So it was like really appealed to me that like, okay, 140 characters, you can put an idea out there, see if it resonates with people and then, uh, and then try another one. And that was, it was like, it really is how my brain works. It's what I like about stand up is like getting to go out at night and go like, is this anything? And then you find out if it's something and then you like retool it and you try it again or you go, Oh good. It was something. Um, yeah. So it like really appeals to the way my brain works, which is uh, terrifying. <laughs> that kind of goes back to like what we were saying though, about like, you know, honing, honing your, your voice and, yeah. and writing everything. I think the technology, like Twitter is a perfect example of how the technology, you know, specifically for comedians, I feel it's a, such a great out. I mean, you're practicing writing basically. Yes. And, and it's like its own genre. Like I think there's definitely, there are sometimes growing pains from like Twitter or like an internet sensibility to like a longer form writing or, or different, you know, different audiences. But I definitely like I owe so much to the being able to find an audience on Twitter and in 20 late 2013. No, is that right? Late 2012, my friend Jack Moore and I started that modern Seinfeld Twitter account. It's 2012. We did the research. Yeah. You should ask us next time about things that happen in your life. <laughs> it was de- December. I'll ask you about me. <laughs> it's like we got it right here. <laughs> We're like literally just, just reading them back to each other right before you got on. <laughs> but December, 2012. That's so funny. Yeah. December, 2012. Um, Jack and I started that um, Twitter account and it blew up like truly overnight became a, a like a known thing and like it was like news networks were mentioning it and like culture roundups like or local news was mentioning it it was like kind of a like supernova viral thing before twitter like it was like in this like very small sweet spot of like a parody twitter account being something that was like could be that successful that fast and people wouldn't just like roll their eyes at it and they would be like, Oh, this is fun. (laughs) 
How did that come about? Because like, I feel like, uh, so I've never heard of the Shorty Awards. So I was doing my, my Josh Gondler research oh, yeah. and you won the, uh, the hashtag fake account category. We did. <laughs> like, we, it's, um, it's up on my, we have a dresser in the little office we have and it's up on there. It's like this, this beautiful glass, like whale's tail. <laughs> it's a very nicely designed award. Um, and <laughs> which is so funny, but it, yeah, we, I was just, I, so this is the same thing. I was tutoring still. So I moved to New York. I didn't teach preschool anymore. I taught full-time for four years while I was kind of tutoring a few hours a week and doing stand-up. And then moved to New York, kept my tutoring job through the same company, but a different office. And uh, they have Boston, New York, and I think Philly offices. And I was like at a client's like at an appointment with a client, he was like doing a practice test or something. And I tweeted a couple things of like, this would be like a modern Seinfeld plot line. And Jack was like, dude, this is like its own thing. This should be like a whole thing. And I was like, or if you say so. And so he made the account and like put a bunch of tweets on it. And like that week, it was like super, it like escalated super quickly where it was like by the next day, it had like 30,000 followers. Is there anything that you could ever like, pinpoint as to like why (laughs) i think i mean i really think that part of it was jack was working at the time at buzzfeed and i think that was helpful because he was super plugged into like his own twitter and like his colleagues were um you know, people that were like on the internet looking for fun stuff all day or looking for interesting stuff all day. And so his positioning there, I think, was super helpful. And and the fact that it was like we did a pretty good job recreating the voice, you know, as like amateur outsiders. And 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 it was truly like we were standing on the shoulders of giants, which is what I always say when people ask. It was like people love Seinfeld because Seinfeld is the show is great. And so like we tapped into this thing that people liked in a way that felt earnest to them like it's just micro fan fiction um yeah it's just funny to me i mean i think it's hysterical and and well done it's just like one of those you know those those i mean just viral videos in general like 30 that's 30,000 views in like a day is like wow yeah, it's really <laughs> you know? wild i like had no no expectation that this would happen and, and it just like blew up so quickly that i started getting um like you know, requests from like, like production companies were reaching out directly and like, just really, really wild stuff that I had never experienced before. It was and it was so fast. And it and it also like, it wasn't overnight success for me and Jack, like, I think it took a little while for both of us to kind of like, you know, not like forever, but like a period of months for us to figure out how to make this a sustainable career thing. And he was better situated than I was because he had he knew that he was like, I want to do TV writing. So he had like a backpack full of scripts. So when people came calling, he was like, oh, yeah, here's like this spec and here's this original pilot. And so he was just ready and transition like very quickly into um, like narrative TV writing. And then I a year later, roughly a year later, got hired at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver to do their web and digital stuff. And then like about a year, you know, nine months after that, I got hired, they got moved over to write for the show. So that's a really great uh, segue into talking about that kind of, like, how did you, I'm really interested to know, like, how you got, I mean, I guess your comedy is generally observational, would you say? Um, 
I um, guess so. I mean, like, it's pretty, it's personal in that it's, and then I talk about stuff that happened to me, but it's also not like, I don't think it's like confessional. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's, it's personal sure. in the way that like, I'm trying to think like, like in the style of like a John Mulaney or a Mike Birbiglia more than a uh, Mark Marin. you know, like I think sure. there, there's like different flavors of like, oh, I'm talking about my own life, but, or, and the things I see in the world, but like from with it, with that more of that kind of vibe. So what drew you, you know, because that's like a very specific and, and, and then, you know, we'll get to this, but you then moved on to Deces and Mural, Deces and Mural. And yeah. it's just like a really interesting, uh, for me, like as a, I just, uh, it's, it's an interesting writing project as far as are you guys, I mean, so are you someone who is like a news junkie and you're just constantly combing, you know, the internet and your, uh, your certain things to, to get ideas for things or how, how did those kind of shows work? Yeah, I read, I mean, I read a lot of news. I think my news diet definitely changes a little bit from job to job and, and, and is a little different, like between seasons and stuff when I'm not working. Like I kind of, you know, I have newsletters that I subscribe to that like, from various publications and so i like kind of use that for my own personal stuff and then like at last week tonight it was a lot of guardian because we like to do like kind of weird international stories and they had a pretty good sampling of like um like the 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 joke that i that somebody maybe dan dan gerwich is a super funny friend of mine who, who used to write there and you you must know him from like stand up and from when he was at college do, and yeah. stuff. yeah dan's <clears> great <throat> but his joke was always like the ideal like palate cleanser story was like mayor of sweden steps on a cat <laughs> and uh and like that kind of stuff like so and that the guardian just had like a sampling of like serious international news u.s news and then like real kind of silly fringe stuff and then with Jesus and marrow it's like local news but it's also like Bleacher Report and Shade Room and like more pop culture stuff. So is that like a lot of your work day of like researching essentially? It's some for sure. At last week tonight, the kind of the research stuff was like a little bit more. Uh, we, I mean, a lot, we got a lot like deeper into the guts of research and stuff. Some of that, it's almost like investigative journalism. And it's like, is that something that you came in with, uh, with experience or are you just like, I'm just writing jokes? It's it's a somewhere in the middle of that because there is like the research department there is really big. It's like a, a big department on that show. And so and they're doing, you know, they're reading through studies and like calling sources to like fact check stuff. And the, the comedy writers have to read a ton of stuff and like look at all this research and, and look at all this footage. And then, then there's another team that like just calls and prepares the footage and finds stuff that seems relevant and interesting. And, and the writers have to like digest all that and then turn it into the script and add the jokes. So it's like not, it's not like I just write the jokes. You you don't get like the skeleton of it and then just like spit jokes, you know, fire jokes into it or, or pepper jokes into it. But it's, it's also like, I'm not a trained journalist. I'm like a comedy writer. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that there's like a symbiotic relationship between all those mm -hmm. kind of departments. And, and is it something, I mean, Daces and Marrow too, like, are you, is there like a category of like, how does it work as far as like, it's cause it's, it's once a week. So what is your, twice a week now? Yeah. Oh, twice. It started at once a week and now it's um, Sunday and Thursday. It was Thursdays and then Monday and Thursday. And now it's Sunday and Thursday. 
And so what is your week like? Like how does how quickly does it come together? That well in in quarantine it's been a little different. Like in the in the office, we would work on a script the day before the show and then we would come in early on the morning that we would shoot and add any relevant stories from like overnight or that morning. And then we would shoot around noon because the edit takes a long time. That's, that's a a big difference, but with, because Jesus and Mero are so improvisational on set and the show is built for them to improvise instead of where Oliver, we would go in and he would know within seconds how long the taping would go. Usually like he would just because the script program scripto kind of gives you an idea of like how long everything plays with the video clips and then with the text. And then he could go, all right, I have to talk 30 seconds faster and then would just do that so that they would make the show would make time. He's like a machine, truly like a comedy machine. And uh, Jesus and Mero are like different comedy machines where they just like, you could show them like, you literally, you could show them a Rorschach test and you would be like, does that, what does this look like? And a normal average non-comedy genius would be like, that's spilled milk. And then they would go, they could do like 20 minutes just on that. There's so funny and so generative and like, so like explosively creative and their, their chemistry is so good that like anything could set them off going forever. So like we go through, we tape long for you know 15 to 20 something minutes of of comedy content and then then it takes a while to edit so like in the studio we edit from like starting at one to like 4 30 and then there's like a we watch it with the producers at 5 30 uh, with you know of all the eps and then it feeds to the network after that between like like around seven so it is like fairly quick yeah it's it's a really i mean both working at both of those shows back to back i feel like have gotten me such a like a a fun and exciting and rounded education in late night comedy because they're they're just like the skills are so there's some skills that translate and then some things that are so different like the idea of cutting you know sitting in an edit with with an editor and i i work with the, the same editor every week and there's another producer julia young who's amazing who works with with a, a different editor and the two of us kind of like toss stuff back and forth and like the idea of you know looking at 25 minutes of jokes about the democratic primary debate and cutting that to like six minutes and then making it look like we didn't just cut the cut it down by whatever 80 percent um 85 percent no 90 percent whatever i'm not doing math refusing um, <laughs> six out of 25 who knows um who can say but uh, what was i gonna say oh yeah but that was like something i would never that would never have fallen to me at last week tonight it would never be done but like that there I would like write and write and write and write and like we would and then we would have the scripts cut and then we would fill them back in with with different new jokes and so it was just like the my part of the show so much of of it at last week's night was done before the show tapes like we were basically just there at the tapings to like watch and and at the end of the week um and then with Jesus and Mero, there's like prep that goes into and writing that goes into before the show, especially if we have like a sketch and like we did, we do a bunch of like weird sketch stuff in in 
you know, during the pandemic, we did all this green screen stuff like we did. Uh, Heaven Nagati wrote this amazing sketch that was called Beethoven versus Jehoven. And it was like a versus battle, but for classical music. And it was so funny. And the guys were so funny in it. And uh, and that was locked, you know, before the taping. But like otherwise, the stuff that happens, like the studio stuff or that that they're shooting in in their homes now, like they come in, we come in with minimal stuff and then uh they riff and then we we kind of shape it from there and like figure it is that's more like i've seen some of the the pandemic ones and it seems like you know yeah you got you just build space you let them go right you just kind of like set them up yeah i mean there's lots of different aspects of the show you know between inter- the interviews and the sketches and the, and the studio stuff but like that they really like to have a pretty clean slate coming in to do that like we don't write a lot of jokes you know we write the title cards between segments that introduce every segment we write setups we write sketches we write um you know all kinds of different like things that it's a very excuse me it's a very small writer's room too like compared last week tonight i think kind of topped out at 10 staff writers um in addition to john and and tim carvel who do a ton of the the rewriting and the editing and the the writing there um but with at Jesus and marrow it's like four staff writers the hosts and um and then a few people that have like writer producer credit like me my boss mike Palasek, and uh, and julia who i mentioned and so there's like yeah it, it's like a much smaller team of people like preparing words for the host to say and a, and a, and we kind of the writing writers there do like kind of more various and diffuse tasks like overseeing edits for for stuff that they wrote that got done in the field and stuff so it's um yeah it's a uh it's like it's a very different both very like exciting and fun jobs and with like with both great super talented super funny and nice hosts and bosses and stuff there's a there's there's a few people in like my day-to-day life and just in the past like few years that have that i've come in contact with who who know you from working on that show ian Berger is uh one of my old neighbors yeah yeah he says hello and then of course my uh my old uh my old roommate jeremy hardwick is also a part of of course yeah so they they both say hello as well so shout out to those guys. I, yeah, I've I've known Jeremy for a long time because he was at Emerson when I was at mm-hmm. Brandeis, and so I knew his like I knew his college improv group a little bit. Um, we did like my sketch group did a festival with them, and and he would he was out like doing stuff like in and around Boston too, like at um at Improv Boston. He and a bunch of Emerson dudes ha- would do this show or like. I don't know if he was like in the core group of people that like ran it, but he was definitely, they had the show called Zebro that was like very cool. And it was like Alicia Yaffe, who's a a comedian and actor. And um, uh, like, I'm trying to think of Bob Wallace, I think was around. Who's like, Mm -hmm. are in New York, who does like animation stuff and production. Um, Yeah. And like, and all those, the guys that like, Maybe I'm like conflating a bunch of venues, but I remember seeing like Joe Mandy and Harris Whittles, who's correct, you know, rest in peace, come come through there, um, come through those shows too. So it was like a ton of really cool people who are doing like really cool things. That was like early two thousands. Yeah, um, yeah, it was like mid aughts, like probably oh four to oh six. 
Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, like, I lived in that apartment with Jeremy in, like, 2008. Also in that apartment, who's come through there, Jocelyn Hughes lived there for a bit. Yeah. That was my roommate. Uh, Shanoa lived there, who I know you know very well. Yeah, oh, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, Shanoa's the <laughs> yeah. best. So it was, uh, it was a good old time. There's a few other comics and a few other actors that came through there, but those were, like, kind of the highlights. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about Jesus and Mero is, like, uh, when you started working there, did you have to step up your shoe game because I know that your shoe game is pretty on point, but did it have to like become like even I, bigger in the last few years? I've been trying to. Okay, so yes, I did. <laughs> I I felt like I try to wear like a nice pair of sneakers on show days, and I try to re- like recycle, like go through the cycle as infrequently as I can. Um, and it was much easier when we were doing one show a week <laughs> to like oops to space it out. But yeah, I. I, it's a a two pronged problem because one, I feel compelled to make sure that I'm, I'm representing the show well and wearing a nice pair of sneakers when we, when we shoot the show. But on the other hand, I know that like trying to keep up with their shoe game individually, I mean, Mara will say that Jesus is like much deeper in the game and, and like has a much more like, you know, I think a, like an eye for the history of stuff in a way that, you know, Mero uh, loves, loves to like get, he'll talk about this, but he'll, he loves to like get a pair of shoes, like the, the dunks collab, the Nike dunks collab with um, Ben and Jerry's this year. And he'll like go out and skateboard in them. And people will be like, Whoa, those are selling for 2000. He's like, they're shoes, man. Um, and so I think trying to keep up with them, I would go broke immediately. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> that's a, yeah, it's yeah, not something you want to like get started on. <laughs> it's a snowball, like it's an arm, and it's an arms race that yeah. I cannot win. So I decline to participate. Is, is there ever any like New York Yankees because they're big Yankees fans? New York Yankees, Boston Red Sox, like yeah. uh, like chatter in the uh, in the office or when you guys are having Zoom calls. It comes up sometimes. Yeah, they'll. I mean, the Red Sox were so bad this year, but in my not good in my interview, which was. I guess like November 2018, it was right. It was the day after must have been. It was the day after the Red Sox clinched the World Series against the Dodgers. And so my interview, I the first thing Jesus said to me when he sat down is he goes, I bet you're real fucking happy today. Because <laughs> we knew of each other a little bit from, you know, he knew who I was and knew I was from Boston and stuff. He said, I bet you're real fucking happy today. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's a great feeling. You guys should try it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> do you know it's crazy like being from 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 boston if you're of like a certain age all you know is winning it kind of drives me crazy it's so annoying it's and i was from the age where growing up it was exactly the opposite like until i was like a mid-teen because i was born in 85 and so i was the the following year the celtics won the championship mm-hmm. but i was you know, I was a baby and uh, the the Patriots got demolished in the Super Bowl by the Bears in 86. And, and so like and then the early 90s when I was like conscious of sports, the Red Sox weren't good. But like Roger Clemens was good for a while and then he left and the Larry Bird was like physically falling apart and retired. Um the Bruins, I remember being fine. The Patriots were bad until the mid '90s when they lost in the Super Bowl to the Packers. So, like, until like Tom Brady's ascent, it was it felt like oh, you don't like winning is for someone else. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And so, and then it became like 2001 onward. It was like the, the Patriots have won. What do they win? Six with Brady six. And, and then the, uh, the Celtics got one. The Red Sox have won four, right? They won the four. They, four? They've got four. Oh, four, oh, seven, 13, 18. Yeah, and then the uh, Bruins have won one as well. And the so. Bruins won one. Yeah, that's right. The Bruins won in that's insane. Eleven. Yeah, that's insane. Because you're right. It was like a it. It's like a f- switch yeah. flipped. Uh, I I went to college in Boston from '02 to '06, and yeah, it was like they just expect you start. They started for, to expect to win. You know, especially sure. the Patriots. Yep. Um, especially the Patriots and the Red. I mean, the Red Sox it got almost to that point after. 86 years of not winning. They won two in four years and then another two, you know, 10, 15 years later. And so, and, and as some, but like, I'm glad that that, you know, people say like, I'm glad I got famous as an adult or whatever. I'm glad that the Boston sports teams got successful as I was becoming an adult, because I think I would be a less gracious and less, and, I would, You'd be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I would be more of an asshole if they won. Like if that happened, like if Brady, if Brady's rookie year, you know, filling in for Drew Bledsoe who got hurt happened when I was like nine years old or like 12 years old, I think I would have a much worse personality overall. Yeah. Do you imagine like being like the same age, but being from like, say like Atlanta but <laughs> 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 it's just terrible everything and nobody cares um, um before we go into we get into play our game we love atlanta by the way <laughs> i love atlanta atlanta is a great yeah. town but nobody cares about the hawks and uh the baseball team is as their historic chokers and then the football team is historically choked in fact i don't think they're going to get up from the from yeah, the mat from that that performance in the super bowl the 20 to uh yeah, that's 28 to 3 Ooh. come back if that is one i mean that I was, I there were three years in a row uh, where the Patriots were in the Super Bowl that I would go home on a on a Sunday or a Saturday from New York. It was that year, the the year they lost to the um, Eagles, and then and the year they and then the next year when they beat um, Los Angeles, right? It was the Rams. They won like six to three, which is a terrible game. But I would go home to like watch the Super Bowl with my family, and then uh, c- come back to work, go directly to work on a five a.m. train, like from Boston back to New York, um, because because like a flight would get you there faster, obviously. But then you end up at like LaGuardia or JFK, <laughs> and and working in Manhattan, you can just take the train and then like walk to the office if you have to where, where I was working. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, my heart went out to the Falcons. I was like brutal because it was as brutal as the first half was. It was like one of the most discouraging halves of a sporting event I've ever watched as a Patriots fan. The second half must have been so much worse for Falcons. I'm sure it was. I just remember being like a, like an un, uh, encumbered, you know, bystander, um yeah. watching and just uh, you know being in new york it's it doesn't matter if they like the teams if a boston team is playing or especially the patriots new yorkers will just like shit on you know they'll just talk shit the whole time yeah, and like everybody was so i just i remember i was in a bar and like everybody was so thrilled and like you know a bunch of giants fans and stuff and i'm just sitting there and i'm like yeah i don't care about the patriots but like i will bet you money that they're gonna win this game I was like, don't bet. It's like, it's time. Like, I'm like, these people are too happy. This is definitely not going to happen. 
I would absolutely trade that though for the night that I watched them lose to the Giants. I was at the creek in the cave and it was miserable. <laughs> the second time, the first time uh, I, I was still in Boston. I bet. Um, that was probably some of those people's highlight of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> David Tyree's catch. I know the helmet catch. God damn. It's it's <laughs> one inch either way. It's a different, different, different sort of story. Different history. So, uh, so Josh, of course, we brought you on for a specific reason. And here at the Know Your Roles podcast, we like to make the comparisons from one thing to another. And uh, we talked about your Seinfeld love. And we're going to talk about one of your other loves, which is a Tribe mm-hmm. Called Quest now. You are probably one of my favorite hip hop people because you're the unassuming hip hop person. It was like <laughs> I was telling Dave, it was like um, the guy was born in cardigans and khakis. But if he was like, if you ask a certain question, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, who played it with that record? That was from 1998. And that was a B side <laughs> off the purple tape. So, where I am super excited to have you on. So, thank you. We are going to be talking about tribe records and comparing them to our favorite Seinfeld characters. So, I decided that we're going to do this in descending order. And uh, we're going to start off with, uh, we got it from here. Thank you for your service, which came out in November of 2016. Um, one of the things I like about this record is the fact that it's kind of like a a love letter to all the people who were influenced by the record. Because you see all the people who were playing on which from Andre to Kendrick to Jack White to, uh, to Kanye to Anderson to Consequence. And uh, and of course, Busta Rhymes. The uh, it's the first record they put out in 18 years, and I think people forget that how great of a band that they were. Unfortunately, we lost Five Dog in March. The record came out in November. It was an interesting time when the record came out because that Tuesday was the election. That Friday, the record came out, and that Saturday was their performance, their jaw dropping performance on SNL with with Dave Chappelle on SNL. One of the best SNL absolutely maybe ever uh, absolutely. So when I was thinking about the comparison, for me, what character I think it best represents, I wanted to I wanted to include a Seinfeld character that I think is beloved, that I think uh, is one of my favorite characters. And just like he debuts in season six, but you don't see him again until season nine. And he's just cooking. He's on, on 11 episodes. And for me, the comparison that I have is David Putty. Because David Putty, the moment that he's on an episode, you're like, holy shit, I forgot how great David Putty was from... It's like uh, I'll be back. We'll make out mm-hmm. the uh, the face printer episode to uh, you sold my Jesus fish. Mm-hmm. To me, he is one of the best characters on Seinfeld and a a representation of how great of a show that is. So, Josh, we're gonna have you go second every time. Great, Josh, we got it from here. Thank you for your service. Who is your Seinfeld equivalent for? That? Okay, I love this record. I played it over and over when it came out. It was a really weird time. I think it just for a lot of people, myself included, just the the in the transition from oh the transitional period out of the Obama presidency and into Trump, it felt really dark. I think there's a real um with the death of Fife Dog, there's a real darkness over this record as like wonderful as it is and as collaborative as it is. Um so to me, I am going to I I the central four Seinfeld characters I each assigned a an album to because I felt like leaving them out would would be a, um, an oversight on my part. But 
I have this as George Costanza. George Costanza, as we got it from here, because a, just a masterpiece of a character, just as this is a masterpiece of an album. And George Costanza is the Seinfeld character who I think the specter of death looms over <laughs> the death and, and loss um, looms over most closely with the death of his uh, fiance from stamp from uh, discount stamp glue. And so he's probably the most morbid character. Most morbid character, most focused on death. And and so it, just the feeling of listening to this album is is like there's a heaviness to, it. especially, you know, e- even political context aside, that it it they had gotten back together to make this record and then and then Fife passed away. And so George Costanza, the kind of like the the Seinfeld character who makes me most aware of my own mortality as this album does. Dave. All right. I, I also love this album. I think it's great. I mean, I think it like, you know, it was a long time coming, but uh, you know, I, it was very, especially the time that it came out, you know, right after the election, of course they recorded it before, but it was very relevant. It still is very relevant. And it's a very like, it's just a, it's, it's like at equal points triumphant, but also like, you know, we're in like telling the reality, mm-hmm. which is why I love it. And also as far as uh, a character, the way I was thinking about it was a character was well, also as an album, I think it's a great book end to their catalog, you know, much more so than another record, which we're going to get to next, which is the love movement, which was. Um, yeah, I agree. That doesn't feel like a career capstone, like regardless of what you think of it. And it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be like, it was yep. their final album and it was like, you know, and, and it, it's good. I mean, we're going to talk about it, but, but yeah, if that was their final album, uh, you know, it, it wasn't as satisfying. Like si- the Seinfeld finale wasn't as satisfying, <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, but we had to wait a long time. And, and also one of the things about Seinfeld is I mentioned this before, but we, my fiance and I, we watched a lot of it months ago, like the first like five seasons and oh my God, when you had to make 22 mm-hmm. episodes of television in a season, like that is like the worst idea. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> you just like can't sustain that. But anyway, my point is that this character is a character that came in later. You had to wait a long time for him. But once he came in, he was hysterical in every episode featured heavily in seven and eight. And I'm talking about the character of Jackie Childs, played by the great Phil Morris, um, who, of course, he's of course he's doing kind of like a character mm-hmm. of Johnny Cochran. And that was like, probably not it. I feel like he, it's probably better that he did it than it was on the page. Oh, I'm sure. You know, because it's so the yeah. performance is so good. Mm-hmm. It's so hysterical. Um, also like back to the, the, uh, this album being like the great capper is Jackie Childs has one of the best lines from the finale as a bookend, which of course is a reprise of Terry Hatcher's line, which is, they're real and they're spectacular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's like his last line. And he gets to like have his like little Johnny Cochran grin on and, and uh, walk out the door. And uh, yeah, Jackie Childs. We got it from nice. here. Great choice. So we're going to move on to the love movement, which came out in September of 1998. The, the, I remember buying this album in 1998. I am a sophomore in college. The, uh, the only thing I found out about this record was I found it to be a little too long uh, 71 minutes, but I also haven't listened to it in 20 years. So I got to listen to it for the first time since probably 1998, 99, 2000, with the exception of the scenario remix, which I've listened to 
a lot. Um, uh, <laughs> the uh, the bonus tracks is what pushes us over the the seventy three minute mark. But you can tell when you listen to the game, you can sort of hear the trappings of what's going to happen next in Q Tip's career because he did a whole lot of. He's starting to become a better producer by this record. And then we've got some revisionist history of listening to it. It's actually really, really good. It kind of dips a little bit in the middle. Started Up is such a great way to start off a, a, an, an album. Uh, and then I've had like a chance to sort of like listen to it and listen to it again. I was thinking about the character that I would most describe it, and I'm going to use revisionist history because at the time I thought he was a great character, but cut to 20 years later, well, probably actually 15 years later, he becomes an even greater character. And I'm going to give that character as Tim Watley for the love movement, because the reason why is because listen to it again. We didn't know then in 1990, whatever that Tim Watley played by Brian Cranston would become probably one of the greatest TV characters mm -hmm. of all time. But we got a chance to look back and we're like, and now you, when you watch back to those old episodes with Tim Watley, Tim Watley is a phenomenal character. So uh, you anti-dentite. Um, um, <laughs> so for me, 1998's The Love Movement, unfortunately the band breaks up a month later, but for me, The Love Movement is Tim Watley for me. Josh. I love that. That's an incredible choice. <laughs> I, so Love Movement, here, here are some thoughts about The Love Movement. Love Movement. One, like you said, better than people remember. I think people, the expectation for this album as Tribe's last album was huge. And and its kind of legacy is, like we were talking about before, David, not as a career capstone achievement. Uh, and I and I still think that like we've got it from here is like, oh, that's the career ending album. This one, we didn't know it at the time, but this was like a mid-period album, actually. Um, and, and so that it makes like a lot more sense in retrospect. It there is a one incredibly corny joke about booty in the middle of mm -hmm. it. Um that very, very silly, but overall better than the reputation. Here's a hill that I will die on. Uh I think an an underrated we see him on the show as kind of a foil and a villain to Jerry. But I think if we saw him in the world, we would just be like, you know, this guy's not so bad. He's not the greatest, but he gets the job done. Uh, and and he's he's better than his reputation. The love movement is Kenny Banya. <laughs> I think if you saw Kenny Banya in a club, you would be like, He's ripping it. He's he's crushing with material about Ovaltine. Like there's, I I think maybe he's bad. Maybe his comedy is bad. But I think what we see of him in the show is he's bad because of what Jerry projects onto him. And and I think he I I think he's unfairly maligned, much like the love. <laughs> I like that he is he's like Jerry's idea of what a hack is. Yes. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you want to read way into it, he's Jerry's fear of how people see Jerry. Like, <laughs> doing a bit about Ovaltine with, with like, the, the distance of history, you're like, that could have been a Jerry bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. The glass is round, the jar is round, why don't they call it round teen? Um, exactly. That is so close <laughs> to something he would say. Of course, yeah. Totally. But it's like, yeah. Um, all right, so I'm next, and I was thinking along the same lines as far as uh you know i we didn't realize how good it was and and there was a lot of pressure on the album and it it it, it didn't uh it didn't meet 
a lot of expectations, but it is really good. Those first couple tracks, I mean, George and I talked about it the other day, but what's the first one started up or, or uh, started up is great. It's incredible. And then find a way of course. And then like, which is also a great song. And then the last few tracks before you get into like the remixes and stuff are, are good. Like I like Busta's lament and anyway, but I, so that's why I went, I, I went kind of deep. I was thinking of like, you know, the ancillary characters, but the people that it wasn't the first person I thought of, but then I had to be like, oh yeah, this guy had like seven episodes on Seinfeld and he was hysterical. And of course that is Bob Balaban as mm -hmm. Russell Dalrymple, the uh, TV executive who is going to and kind of does produce their show um, about nothing and then like joins Greenpeace. Um, uh, also, I don't, you know, the joke on the show is that George thinks he can uh, spell anyone's last name by hearing it. And um, he can't spell, like he tries to spell Dalrymple and Bob Balaban just like so perfectly monotone is just like, not even close. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, I mentioned that because I, in my research, uh, I was looking at up. Do you guys actually know how they spell Dalrymple? No. Because it's insane. It's D-A-L-R-Y-M-P-L-E. Dalrymple. Huh. <laughs> yes. Wow. Your your face is exactly what it should be right now. That's tough. Um, but yeah. anyway, yeah. but yeah, so that's why... The love movement is uh, Russell Dalwhipple played by Bob Balaban, who love it. You know, is hysterical on the show, but is also like he's a thing, and he is mm -hmm. great. And he can he's he, he. I think he's someone who can deliver like jokey jokes, but also deliver like deadpan lines that will make you mm -hmm. laugh as hard as anything. So yeah, Russell Dalwhipple. Nice, great choice. All right, so moving right along to Beats, Rhymes, and Life, released in July of 1996. This is my the, the summer before my freshman year of college, so I remember buying this at the store. The, uh, it debuted at number one with the single uh, Once Again, which is a, uh, which is a great song. Uh, I, 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 love the, uh, I love the fact that there's not one but two, three OJ references in this album, <laughs> and the album closes out with Stressed Out. Which is a which may be a forerunner of emo rap. So shout out to Drake and Kanye <laughs> and Kid Cudi because I'm sure you probably listened to that song before you you started got starting your careers. the The tone is a little bit darker, and uh, there's a sketch with the gunshots, which I don't love. There's also responds to this is by MC Hammer and West Side Connection on Keep It Moving, which is actually a pretty good song. My only issue with it, it has nothing really to do with Tribe Called Quest is that in 1996, these are the rap albums that came out that year. Um, All Eyes on Me by Tupac, The Coming by Busta, Cool Keith, A Reasonable Doubt by Jay-Z, UGK's Riding Dirty, Outkast, Italians, Ghostface, Iron Man, Red Man's Muddy Waters, The Score by the Fugees, and it was written by Nas. Now, I'm not saying these records are better than them, but for some reason, 1996, I'm reaching for one of those instead of Beast Rhymes in Life. Now, I do like the record, but it's not the reason why I love the band, so I'm going to give it Jerry Seinfeld. As much as I love Jerry Seinfeld, wow. I love a Jerry great Seinfeld, choice. but it's not the reason why I watch Seinfeld. So Beats, Rhymes, and Life. A great choice. Incredible call. Josh, what do you think? Uh, okay. I have similar thoughts. I think it is a, a, an enjoyable record, but I think it's enjoyable. Like you can tell sonically that it falls between Midnight Marauders and um, Love Movement, right? It's like kind of a middle, like very transitional 
um, it's good, but it's not the one that I want to hear the most. Like it's, it's, if I want to hear, you know, if I want it to put on something kind of in the background while I'm relaxing, it's going to be love movement. If I want something while I'm walking around and want to like focus on it a little more and like really enjoy the, the tribe ambiance Islamic in New York city, uh, participating in my day, it's going to be midnight marauders or, or, you know, low in theory, probably uh, one of those two, but it is good and it's good and and especially on occasion when you forget and you're like oh yeah i know a lot of these lyrics still and it's been a while since i've listened to this because these songs are good and so like you kind of want to be taken by surprise Mm -hmm. and you don't want this spice used too uh aggressively you want to kind of be sparing and then when it hits you're like oh yeah this is great so for those reasons uh newman is who uh is who beats rhymes in life is. <laughs> it's got all the yes. trappings of all the things that you love about tribe mm-hmm. from the, the, the great samples, the, the sports references. Yep. It's just not my favorite. Now there's nothing wrong with that. It's like Dave and I were talking is Radiohead records. It's the King of limbs sure. of, of the Radiohead discography. It just happens to be the record that I don't grab to the most, but I did enjoy listening yeah, me to too. it. And stressed out is actually a lot better than I remember it to be. I, I remember being like, oh yeah, I overlook this one. I like, mm-hmm. don't think of it that often enjoyable, but again, it's like not the, it's just exactly that. It's like of this discography, it's like probably, you know, the fifth of the six, it's like fifth or sixth. And, and when the top four, three to four albums are like classic classics, mm-hmm. then that's like not that much of a slight. Right. Dave. And it comes in a tough, like the first three albums are classics and then this yeah. is the fourth one. But uh, yeah, I actually dug up, I have it on cassette tape <laughs> right here. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't know why I couldn't, I didn't somehow don't have uh, Low End Theory and uh, Midnight Rauders on tape anymore. But uh, I, I feel this, I feel a similar way, but like going back in, in that, like it wasn't my top, like I wanted I wanted a third album in the min or actually really a fourth album uh, in those, those first three are like, you know, you, those, those could almost all be the same album. I mean, I don't mean that as like a bad thing, but they have a very kind of similar, I mean, there is a trajectory from Mm -hmm. people's, you know, up to into uh, through midnight Marauders, but they, they had, they're sonically similar. Mm -hmm. And uh, this record is a little bit different. It's a little bit of a departure and I didn't know, like, I wasn't really ready. For, like, this came out in 96. I was 12. And uh, I was like a big Tribe fan. But, you know, I was rigid in my thinking of, like, I just want what I know. I don't want new shit. And I, like, you know, I want, like I said, I want another Mid- Midnight Marauders. And and this was kind of it, but not that. And it took me a long time to realize, it took me a long time to, like, come back to Jay Dilla. To, be, to go mm-hmm. through college and then to, like, I have all these people that are like hip hop people that are like, Oh, Jay Dilla. I'm like, I know hip hop like Jay Dilla. And then be like, Oh, I know all of his music. Yep. Um, or, you know, not all of it, but a lot of it. And then, you know, in, in college and probably coincide with the uh, smoking weed, but uh, I came to be like, Oh, this guy is the genius. Like th- this guy's the guy, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and as good a, of a producer, as Q-Tip is personally, I pre- I think Jay Dilla is maybe the best producer ever, and his beats, even the ones on beats rhyme and rhymes in life, are so good to me that they don't even need MCs. <laughs> like sure. a lot of them are just so good. But 
like I said, he was somebody who kind of wasn't at the forefront of the album. He's not, he doesn't rap on the album. Uh, but I think he's like really the genius behind a lot of it. That's why as a Seinfeld character, he is George Steinbrenner played by Larry Ooh, David. What a call. <laughs> Great call. Uh, another person that like, I didn't know why I liked the character of George Steinbrenner on Seinfeld, but I loved it. And I liked that you never got to see his face. And also I didn't realize that it was Larry David. And I also didn't realize until much later. And then Curb came out that like, probably the reason why I like Seinfeld is Larry David more so than any other individual, you know? So that's why it's Jay Dilla. It's, uh, you know, beats rhymes in life. Amazing. Larry David as George Steinbrenner. Nice. All right. So before I get to the last three records, just so let you guys know, there are no wrong answers for the last three records, because as far as I'm concerned, when you, when you, when you look at a list of the greatest albums of all time, it's going to include two of the, the, the last three, or maybe if it's a lift that's worth it, it's just going to have all three on them. So <laughs> just so you know, whatever you say is going to be mm-hmm. the right answer. With that being said, moving right along, Midnight Marauders released. I mean, at the end of the day, we just make all this shit up. So Pretty much, yeah. There is no wrong answer, though. Moving right along, released in 1993, November, Midnight Marauders, widely regarded as probably the greatest, greatest rap record of all time. And I'm just going to put it as one of my favorite records of all time. Same day as enter the wu-tang was released right? absolutely which is which is so crazy that's incredible yeah can you imagine like going those like asking your mom for 30 dollars to go buy two of the greatest rap records of all time if not two of the greatest records i can remember that i can't imagine and just like having your brain explode out your ears and just like two widely like uh like ends of the spectrum in 1993 just as, like just, like one like sonically just like recorded would seem like in a basement in a hallway, which they even mentioned on that record, and another one that's just sort of like a sampling masterpiece from the jazz, the funk, the soul, the R&B samples. I owe a lot of debt to it, just for me personally, because uh, I totally cribbed it from my my record, uh, You're a Good Friend, which is in essence just pictures with me with my friends, which is in essence what the cover of Midnight Marauders is. Um, influences like from Talib to Outkast to Kanye, of course, and peaked at number eight. Uh, a war tour, of course, we all know those songs like Relaxation. Of course, I didn't know what Seamus Furniture was until I moved to New York City. And I found out what that was. It's like, oh, that's what that meant the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's not a single entendre. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I actually saw them in 1995. And during the performance of Oh My God, they they dared the audience in the grass to run to the stage like I do in the video, which is, which is unbelievable. And I wish I'd been able to see that, unfortunately. 95 you don't have uh you don't have youtube back then um so when i thought about the comparison of uh of who i think best represents this record i'm i had to put on my second favorite character on seinfeld and for 29 episodes every part that he's in he just dominates and i think frank costanza is one of my favorites characters on seinfeld he is just it's i find tesla to be distracting but no he's just <laughs> incredible so so uh midnight marauders now you would ask me again next week is like what i would be i'd probably change it again but midnight marauders frank Costanza as of right now four o'clock on a thursday so josh midnight midnight marauders. what else can be said about the record it is one of the greatest exactly. rap records of all time one of the greatest records of all time period um i think this is more of a, a performer to album comparison than a character to album comparison. I think there is no greater television comedy performer 
the goat in history <laughs> and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Absolutely. She incredible as Elaine Bennis, obviously, but then to have uh, two other shows, two network shows after that, and then Veep, which is like just incredible also, you know, like th- I, that just cemented her for me as like the longevity, the range. She was on SNL in the eighties, uh, just like the greatest career and with Midnight Marauders being my favorite, pr- probably my favorite tribe record, I just have to go, well, uh, greatness recognizes greatness and aligns with greatness. Excellent. Elaine Dave. Davis. Yeah, I it, also Midnight Marauders is like, it's one of my, I was telling George, I think like Midnight Marauders and Low End Theory are like two of my top 10 albums of like anything all time. And like, I, 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 I kept going back and forth whether I I want to say Low End Theory or Midnight Marauders is like my favorite album. Honestly, they're like interchangeable. They're, they're both so good. Midnight Marauders is so much fun. It's jam-packed. There's like no, there's, there's like, there's hardly any, there's nothing I skip basically. And, and it's like front to back. And, and they also, it's also like a very varied record. It's very funny, but it also has like a lot of like, pretty introspective also like things i didn't like you know i didn't know who the fuck steve biko was <laughs> when i was you know 14 mm-hmm. or 12 when this came out uh but it's probably it's one of my favorite records if not my favorite and that's why i'm going to give it my second favorite character one of my favorite characters i think maybe like the funniest of the main characters and for me it's george Cassandra. it's george because like i said mm-hmm. it's just like it's nonstop and, and George's plot lines, like Jerry's, you know, the, the, the pretty one. And he's the, the, like, you know, the, uh, oh, he's a nice Jewish boy, you know, <laughs> whereas like George has the darkness and, uh, and, and also like, sure. again, back to the Larry David and curb thing, like George is like the representation of Larry David and, and you know, especially watching curb, like, I have great affinity for that George character. And also Jason Alexander, who did a great job because he's not playing Larry David. You know what I mean? Like it would have been easy to just play Larry David, but he's bringing something. He's, he's a very good actor. There's someone I read somewhere. I wish I could cite my source on this, that there was something early on. There was like a, 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 a decision that George made that was like so contrary to etiquette and like how people act in the world. And he came in one day and he was like, I just don't know how to deliver this line because no one would do this. No one would say this. And Larry David went, no, I literally did that. And he was like, <laughs> and George was like, oh, that unlocks this whole character for me. Yeah. <laughs> that like, this is actually, I, yeah. I heard that same thing. It was either Larry David Telling or Jason yeah. Alexander talking about it. It's perfect. Um, yeah, I heard that same thing. <laughs> yeah, Larry David's like, no, I that I did that. That happened. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Midnight Marauders, the George Costanza. All right, so we are keeping moving through the 90s, released in September 1991, The Low End Theory, which is oddly enough my favorite Tropical Quest record. But again, this is not Sophie's choice. I'm not gonna, <laughs> we're not gonna lose a, a like a we're not gonna lose a, a child. Um, uh, from the singles, we got Jazz and Scenario. The, the mind-melting Busta Rhymes verse on Scenario and Check the Rhyme. It's a milestone in alternative hip-hop. It's 48 minutes long, and it's never a wasted moment. I'm going to read you this quote from Bob Power. 
He said until that point, when people used samples on records, it was pretty much one loop that played throughout. With the low-end theory, Q-Tip, Ali Shahid were at the leading edge of a new wave where people started making elaborate musical constructions from different places, which means it's like they're just recording something, taping it, and they just keep going back and forth. It's unbelievable. And uh, it's regarded as the Sgt. Peppers of hip-hop records. And I like to think that like maybe we can, years later, we can reverse that and say that like the, the low end theory might be even more influential than Sgt. Peppers. So that's just for me. Uh, Josh, you already said that uh, Julie Drive is to go, and I'm going to piggyback off of that because I'm going to give you the reason why it's to go, and I'm going to give you the reason why Lowen Theory is my comp for her. So, uh, Julie Dreyfus has received 11 Emmys, nine SAG Awards, five Comedy Awards. In 2018, she was awarded the Mark Twain Award, which is the highest honor in comedy. She's Mary Tyler Moore. She's Lucille Ball, but she just dominates those two, and they're like the other two in the top three. And that is the reason why Lowen Theory is my comp for that. It's it's Elaine Bennis, and it's there is there isn't a, anybody better than that, as far as like Love characters. It. Elaine is so good. It's such a- Elaine is so good. In fact, when you rewatch it, underrated somehow. It's absolutely underrated. So low in theory was for you. For, so for me, low in theory, flip. You know, it flips a little bit between like what I prefer this or Midnight Marauders on a given day, but I do think low in theory is like the um prototype even though it's the second album it is the like if someone's like what's a tribe called crest record you hand them low end theory it's like everyone talks about them as jazz rap this is like the jazziest rappiest um totally it is the it is the the record that makes the uh, that like brings all the other records into focus like in in alignment with this one um not even that it's necessarily the best, it's just the most. And I, so I think um, I have to say Low End Theory is Jerry Seinfeld, who is not my favorite Seinfeld character. But in addition to being the focal point of the series Seinfeld, he is obsessed with show business as this record explicitly talks about show business, right? Um, mm-hmm. It talks a lot about the record industry. And it's it's like very inward looking, but still in a way that's uh, outward facing and entertaining in the way that like Seinfeld didn't feel like it was just for people who worked in entertainment, even though it was like about development of a network sitcom, which is so can be could come off as so navel gazy. Um, the uh, what the song what is like a Jerry Seinfeld thought experiment like it's one of those premise-based songs that's like wordplay and concept and like finding every angle on an idea in a way that like seinfeld writes bits and um i would i think for those reasons low in theory is jerry seinfeld the character except for buster rhymes verse on scenario which is uh kramer but more on kramer (laughs) He's, he's, he's trying to steal the song from the rest of the guys in the band yeah. <laughs> as Kramer is trying to steal the scene from the rest yep. of the guys on the show the uh I listened to it again today it's 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 aged nicely it's uh it's it's honestly like what was he thinking that is out of control good rawr, rawr. it's so good that that is it's like what is he doing <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean yeah like it just sounds like obviously um Buster Rhymes is Buster Rhymes, like you, you hear how that progresses over years. This isn't like the first song he ever recorded, right? Like they had done leaders of the new school stuff before Correct, this. Correct. Yeah. You hear 
his verse on this and and the rest of the album is like so in control and so restrained even across like the emotional and and topical spectrum and then you get to this and he's just like just like making dragon noises and yeah it's so he's so different and he's so different than everything like it's you know what i mean uh it's um it's unbelievable it's like just there's no you're just like never i don't know it's it's like looking at the iphone for the first time and you're just like this is also a phone (laughs) like Right, like this. Yeah. I mean, it totally launched him. I mean, it did. Yeah, leader, leaders of the new school had yeah. records. They did. But, yeah, they they actually like, predate Tribe. Mm-hmm. It's weird because like they actually broke up on um an episode of UMTV Raps, and it was like it was it was clear it was kind of like I just say it was like because they're not they they weren't brothers or anything, but it was kind of like uh Michael Jackson and Jackson Five. It was clear that this dude didn't need these other dudes. Yeah. and that's what that's what happened on that scenario song. It was like he was like I don't think I need these other guys. And next thing you know what? Uh, the coming comes out three years later. So, yeah, it was is the track that launched his career. All right, so Dave. All right, so I think Low End Theory is my favorite record. I I I also like switch between it and Midnight Marauders, but over the last like forty eight hours of listening to like nothing but Tribe, I just think that Low End Theory is incredible. I mean, it it really is almost perfect, and it's I mean the first couple like also also Tribe is one of those uh their their lines specific lines i mean talk about like they must have comic they have a lot of comedy influence because uh like some of especially fife like some of his lines are so funny they're they're also one of the groups that their lines i feel like have been sampled and redone throughout Mm -hmm. hip-hop like more than anyone else like they've made entire songs um like booming in your booming in your booming in your jeep or like uh you know, I, yeah, I love this record. I love all the, uh, I, I love the lyricism on it. The last, like, also all the videos, like Check the Rhyme was maybe like the first. I mean, I had, I was so young. I was probably like 10 or 11. So I had heard stuff off of people's instinctive travels and like, you know, like uh, Can I Kick It and El Segundo. But Low End Theory was the one that I was like, oh, like you, Josh, you were saying, I almost think I would go even further and like, it's like what, like if people ask me as a, at a young age of like, what is hip hop? Like, this mm-hmm. is the record that I would go to of like, cause it is everything. It is jazz. It is lyricism. It is comedy. Um, but it's also like, you know, it's uh commentary as well. Uh, but again, it's almost perfect. There is not a single skippable track. I think the end of it is absolutely amazing. And that is why as a character, someone we already mentioned, but I think is there's not a single second where he's on screen that I don't find that I'm not giddy, which is Frank Costanza, Jerry Stiller. Um, he is absolutely hysterical and laugh. He makes me laugh out loud. I I can quote the lines and I still laugh out loud. And again, I can quote the lines from low end theory and still be like, Oh my God, the writing of this, just like what you said, what the song, what I it's, what is one of those songs that I can't listen to just once I have to listen to it over again because I'm like, I'm so like, I just, every line is like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Um, But yeah, that's why low end theory is Jerry Stiller, Frank Costanza. 
All right, and rounding it out, the final record released in 1990, People's Distinctive Travels in the Past of Rhythm. Uh, this is 30 years ago, which is kind of <laughs> interesting. Listening to it this week and doing my research of this week, I realized that this record is actually better now than it was in 1990. In fact, they did a uh, they did a re-release on vinyl like for the 25th anniversary, adding some different tracks and some different productions. And I don't think they even needed to do that. I think the the record in 1990 is absolutely perfect. What I did, what I found out from the research that I did was that um, Q-Tip, who produced it kind of by himself, a little bit with Large Professor, he learned how to produce, learned how to producing techniques from sitting in the year before on his buddies De La Soul, who recorded Three Feet High and Rising, which is also an incredible record. A little long, a little long, but incredible. It's a little long. And that, they're all a little they're long. They're all, well, the, that one is a little like bit. The first two. The first two are a little long, they're like 73 minutes, which is kind of a lot. But like also what he learned that week while recording people in Six of Travels in a Passive Rhythm is that during the same week at the studio, Queen Latifah was making her record. Prince Paul was mixing a De La record. And so was uh, one of their studio. Anyway, there, uh, De La was also down the, down the hall. So they learned how to, they learned how to uh, sample and produce records by just pressing tapes and pressing pause on tapes, which is kind of an interesting way to sort of learn. And now looking back on it now, it was like, this is how they became such big deals in the producing community. It's got children crying. It's got Hawaiian strings. It's got frogs. Pitchfork gave it a 10 out of 10, which is kind of it's jaw-dropping how good of a record it is and from 1990 it's like it's kind of psychedelic it's sort of there's like this weird behemoth behemoth thing going on and i i enjoyed re-listening to it i mean it's like without this record you don't have bands like diggable planets you don't have the fujis you don't have erica badu it's a sampling masterpiece grover washington cv wonder uh the chamber brothers ramp i'm like this is crazy so I'm going to give it one of my favorite Seinfeld characters. Of course, not my favorite, but I did enjoy listening to this week. And that's George Costanza. And George Costanza is, I think, is the second best Seinfeld character. And I think, I mean, like I said, you can't go wrong with the last three, but this is this record was like was eye-opening how good it was re-listening to it this week. Josh. I had the same reaction re-listening. I was like, oh, this is so good. Like, I remember it being kind of like, second tier by a little bit and mm-hmm. i was listening she's like no this is awesome it's so good uh i loved it um it is there's like silliness a lot of silliness in it that like i left my wallet in el segundo is like there's like narrative but it's like playful um there it's just like class there's so many classic songs off of their first record it's like wild that they hit the ground running so influenced by de la soul but like not sounding like de la soul like they were grouped together obviously in like the native tongues collective mm-hmm. but this this you would not mistake this for a de la record it was right. like came out of the gate they came out of the gate making their own thing um i think because of how how silly some of it is and just like the 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 like the playfulness of it i'm gonna go with uh i kramer overall i think this is great it could very easily be um frank costanza as well it's just like fun constantly uh it's so listenable it's so good like you talk about you know what i'm gonna switch it and i'm gonna (laughs) leave kramer off this except for the the scenario verse because unlike uh michael richards this aged well (laughs) like jerry stiller so we're gonna i'm gonna have this also be Frank Costanza. Um, I just like, it's such a good album. Um, it's like, I mean, there's nothing like rap music to make you feel old and unaccomplished. Right. Like 
What, how old were they when they made this? They game? were like 1918. No. Yeah. Oh, it hurts yeah. me. 19 or 20. The uh, the thing that I enjoyed the most about re-listening to it was like the references that I feel like they enjoyed. I mean, like they enjoyed Stevie Wonder. They also enjoyed like uh, Marvin Gaye. And I love this, the, the finger snapping and the hand clapping, which I didn't notice back then because but if you put it on sonically is out of control and if this all of this shit it just blew my mind i was like and that's just such a simple thing but it's not a thing you you hear and see in hip-hop so it's so good yeah it's a really uh, great record frank costanza i've changed my, my <laughs> dave was saying earlier he was like dude i was like oh i forgot that song was on there it's like oh i forgot that song was on there so yeah yeah that yeah that's that that brings me to it and and uh yeah that's how i feel about it of like oh shit this album is so good like and and also just to piggyback on some of the stuff you guys said which is one of the reasons why i love it is they are so there's something for everybody in in all of tribe stuff but definitely in this album and their influences are so broad i mean you mentioned a bunch of them george but also like they sample lou reed they fucking sample lou reed on this and like you know that's a song that i heard growing up all over the place and then i heard like because my parents are listening to like velvet underground and shit like that and then listening to that i'm like wait that's what what you know that like was one of the first instances where oh this is like a new thing you know um but i think that you know the second like we kind of said low-end theory and midnight marauders get a lot of the love uh but some of the best tracks are on are on people's instinctive travels i mean we mentioned but left my while on el segundo and can i kick it like those are two of the better party tracks ever yeah i mean those are so much fun if you hear those in a party you'll be happy you know um but that's why i wanted to go with a character that's already been mentioned but it's not the main main character but i think that their storylines are some of the best and funniest and that's elaine bennis it's elaine bennis because like this the the when her story is the focal point i mean some of the like the, you know, all this stuff with David Putty and like the sp sponge worthy, mm -hmm. like that's a hysterical uh, uh, through line. And uh, the episode where like she gets dumber from not having oh, sex yeah, yeah, and yeah. George gets smarter is like one of the best fucking episodes so of good. television. It's so hysterical. But again, it's I think she in, and also, I think that I for when I was thinking about the characters, I almost had forgot that Elaine is also a goon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she's also a goon with them. Like, like she's funny and like you know she's like the bubbly one, but she's also a goon. Like Jerry sends her after Terry Hatcher to to see if she has fake boobs, like which is so fucked up. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, so and also like. I'm like, why did she do that? What is she doing? Why is she doing? They're that? all bad um, people. <laughs> yeah, terrible people. Um, but uh, but yeah, she she's hysterical, and that that uh, that character is one of the great characters, and Julia Louis Dreyfus gives one of the great performances. And yeah, this album is so influential. I mean, there's a quote just to bring it back to Lou Reed. There's a quote from uh, I think it's Brian Eno who said the first Lou, the first Velvet Underground record. Only 2,500 people bought the record, but every single person who bought it became started a band, you know? And that's like the same way I feel about like people's instinctive travels is like, it's so influential. I mean, the sound is so, because like I was saying, like, it's not, it's, it's hip, it's hip hop as like a all encompassing thing. 
because it, it's so it the, it's genre bending it, and it and like i said like he samples everything from marvin gates to lou reed so yeah elaine bennis that's great oh the one last point that i wanted to make i'm sorry on this one is that benita applebaum you gotta put me on sounds like something frank costanza would yell like, into the phone like benita applebaum yeah. you gotta put me on Definitely. Uh, yeah i didn't say when i said of, uh, about jerry stiller but some like his outtakes are some of the funniest shit ever like there's the one outtake from the like the end of the show where he is saying the name of the apartment complex in boca or whatever and it's like i think the name of it is del boca vista yeah. and he just like can't get it right <laughs> he's like del bisto becco <laughs> and they're all like they, they can't they're all cracking up and they can't like hold it in yeah he seems like he would have been a blast to be around on set well, Josh, thank you for playing the Know Your Rules game with Seinfeld and uh, Tropical Quest. Before we let you go, plug something real quick for us. Oh, my gosh. Um, thank you so much for having me. This was such a blast. Uh, I have a book out if you're looking for holiday gifts. I have a book called Nice Try Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. And my last album is on vinyl um, uh, called Dancing on a Weeknight. Um, I Sorry to do a million plugs. I also have a podcast called Make My Day. Oh, I'll do them all which is Make My Day. It's a comedy game show where there's only one contestant every week, so they always win. The contestant always wins. We, I was listening to that before we, before we brought you on, so it's weird to be listening to your voice. And then there you are right in front of me. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> same, same guy as always. <laughs> so great to see again, you. Again, Josh, it is great to see you. Um, uh, Jesus Amaro comes back on TV when again? Probably early February. Early February, is, okay. Is my guess. I don't think we have a premiere date yet. Oh, when is wait? When does this come? Uh, out? Tomorrow at some point. Tomorrow. Okay. Night. So there's a. So this is this comes out on Friday. They on um, Sunday night. They interviewed Barack Obama, and there's like a half hour special on Showtime of them just talking to Barack wow. Obama, and he just like roasts them about how bad the Knicks. <laughs> that I want. I would like to watch that now that I know. Early Obama. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, again, I want to say as well, thank you so much for coming on. It was really nice to meet you and talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. And uh, I hope you had a good time, and we will see you soon. Oh, sure. Well, this was a blast. Thank you so much for having me. And I, it was, I had so much fun. Thank you for it's such a fun topic too. Absolutely. Um, when when we get a uh, when we get a I guess a hold on this uh, this this COVID situation, we'll have to get a drink. You don't yeah. live very far from here, so no, not at all. Get a drink, some barbecue, we'll have a good time. Absolutely. Brooklyn, it is. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. I'll talk to you later. All right, bud. Bye. That was great. He's great. Yeah, no, that was, uh, that was, that win is about as expected considering the, 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 the guy having on it. No, he's a total pro. He's, and he's, he's super. I mean, his, his, uh, like his stand up and personas is like this too, but, you know, having not met him, he's so nice. He's such a nice guy. Um, just seemed like a really genuinely nice guy. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, no, we were, we were, when I first met him, we were convinced that, uh, that there was like a dead co hooker in a cocaine story. <laughs> and yeah. so far, so far, no, no dead hooker. Or cocaine. Yeah. I also really enjoyed how much he, uh, like put into it. Like he, he, he really thought about it, <laughs> which I, I really appreciated. Hope he also had fun. Hope you guys had fun listening to it. Uh, he's very, He's very funny. He's very sweet. Uh, obviously a wealth of uh, knowledge on, I'm sure more topics, but definitely uh, Tribe and, and Seinfeld. <laughs> um, also that Twitter, I, I, we, he didn't plug it, but you know it's older, but that Twitter account, Modern Seinfeld, like George and I were reading them to each other before 
we got on with him and man, it's, it's hysterical. He's hysterical. He's a great writer. It's kind of cool to find out how it, how it took off. It was sort of, uh, because, uh, I met him right before that. So like, but I've been, I remember back in 2012, people was like, you follow this modern Seinfeld thing. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, <laughs> not really, I'm not realizing it was like, uh, that was, that was my buddy the whole time, which is kind of fun. So it's kind of neat to find out how that took off. Awesome. What's uh, what are you looking for? What are you looking forward to the next? Uh, uh two things. Uh, both of them very quick. The there's a Tiger Woods uh, kind of documentary that that premieres tonight. So if you're listening to this, it's like the, this episode will probably come out the next day. But there's a Tiger Woods documentary I'm really looking forward to checking out, and it's really not about the golf part of Tiger Woods. It's about the sort of uh, it seems to be about from the preview I watched this morning. This would be about his uh, his complications with race and how did as like how that was how that happened and like of course and one of the things that was featured prominently was the uh, the racial draft from the Dave Chappelle sketch from the that from I guess like that's probably like over fifteen years ago, but uh, I think it's like but it's like it's the character study about like him kind of being stuck in two worlds and like being like half black and half Asian and playing golf which is like not the most diverse diverse uh, sports out there so there's uh there's that that's uh, that's the thing that premieres tonight that i'm looking forward to and the other thing was on the complete opposite end of the spectrum tomorrow is friday friday is usually a uh is a is a leg day it's like gonna work out uh there's this rapper that i that i that i've kind of enjoyed listening to on the internet his new album comes out tomorrow i'm gonna give that a give that a sniff his name is jack harlow who's from louisville kentucky and uh, his music, I find to be amusing. It's not for me, Jack Harlow. I think is like twenty three years old. But there's a song that he has called Tyler Hero, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to listening to watching a documentary about a golfer and uh, listening to a rapper from Louisville, Kentucky, tomorrow afternoon. So those are two things that I'm looking forward to this weekend. Yeah, Jack Harlow. The Tyler Hero song is really entertaining. That's hysterical. Yeah. I gotta, I'm, I'm gonna check that out. Kid Cudi has a new album coming out. I'm kind of interested in. Not a fan. No, I love Kid Cudi. I think I like him a little bit more as the actor, though. I don't know. Sometimes I like the last few Kid Cudi records. I'm like, I, I agree. I agree. But the first uh, one, who invited the wet blanket to the party? Jesus, guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand what you're saying there. It, they're a little. We used the word earlier, but morbid. Um, but yeah, no, they're, they're the first few ones that I thought were pretty awesome. Are so good. So and and apparently this is like it's. At, it's supposed to be like a throwback to those two. Like it's like a yeah. man on the moon with something or other. Shout out to Scott Miss Cuddy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. For me, for what I'm looking for, what I'm looking forward to. Uh, one thing that I'll probably mention this in the bar talk uh, over the next, you know, few months or, or whatever, or mention this further, but I just want to mention it very briefly right now. Something that I am looking forward to or for looking for is this New York city council. I know a lot of people are listening to this from New York, and you may or may not know, 35 of the 51 city council seats are up next year. I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to spend time on like city council or anything right now, uh, other than to say that it's just very important. <laughs> it's almost more important than all the other elections because people actually affect our day-to-day life. Um, but it's like a real chance... I'm looking forward to it because I'm looking forward to like getting into more research and like doing my due diligence on people. We've started a little bit. We have a connection to actually a couple of people running, which is cool. But um, I'll, like I said, I'll start to talk about that a little more. I just wanted to mention it because it's not too early to start to think about that New York City Council. 
everybody. Things, the fun things I'm looking forward to is uh, I'm really trying to watch Memories of Murder, man. Have you, the the Bong Joon-ho, Bong Joon-ho, the director of Parasite and the host, it's like his first, I don't know if it's his, it's his totally his first film, but it's like one of his first films and it hasn't been available for a long time and it's on Amazon and it's supposed to be, it's like based on a true story about a serial killer or some shit. And it's- It's on Amazon? Yeah. It's the same guy, the his his main guy, act the actor. I forget the, the guy's name. Um, but uh, yeah, it looks fucking awesome. And every it's supposed to be like a masterpiece, you know. And I think he's I've never seen a film of him that I haven't like loved. I think he's a genius. So yeah, Memories of Murder, I wanna watch that. And we also are we're like two or three episodes in to the HBO Max uh, Heaven's Gate documentary, <laughs> which is like fairly entertaining it's really weird uh the Semino movie the michael Semino movie is that right <laughs> not not uh not michael Jamino's like uh like la- second and last fucking movie ever whatever <laughs> like nobody saw that shit um no like the uh the cult that uh you know committed mass suicide <laughs> under the like you know the uh the the that's not a spoiler alert. That's a known, that's a known thing. And <laughs> you learn that in the first five seconds, but, but, uh, should come up with a different title. Cause like, I was kind of hoping to see a documentary about a shitty movie. They're just talking <laughs> about fucking mad suicide. Yeah. It's kind of boring. No, but it's like, they, these people are so bugged. They think that their, their whole philosophy is that they are, there are like entities inside of you that aren't your physical, that exists beyond your physical body. And th- the spirit it's a you're an, it's an alien and your spirit like goes back up into outer space basically like and that's that's your goal is to like get your soul back home to outer space and like that's their whole thing and it's like it's fucking insane again there's i listened to a podcast about it about a year ago that's just called heaven's gate and it's like from the people's perspectives that were like in it or like their parents were in it because like it's fucking insane i mean some people they have like 10 year old kids and they're like, we're just going to start this life now. Like, you're going to live with your, your grandparents and you're never going to see us again. And we're never going to have any contact again. Have a great one. And there's like a 10-year-old kid. And she's like, uh, you believe, you're leaving me for aliens? <laughs> it's insane. Have you got HBO Max yet? Did you figure that out yet? You know, I think I, I, think I have it because I have HBO. Somebody said, yeah. it was like, you know, you probably have that because you have HBO. I said. Well, did you? Okay. I, was like, I said that on this show last week. It's like. <laughs> There's the uh, the thing that like I want to watch on there is this show called The Flight Attendant that looks fucking awful. <laughs> that's I haven't seen it, but that's the show that Hillary and I like. It comes up on the on the screen, and we just like laugh and they're like, we never want to watch that show <laughs> just because it looks yeah. uh, like it's Kaylee. Cuoco. Count me in, Kaylee Cuoco. Yeah, sign me up for some for some some bad acting. Yeah, some uh some 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 B scares. I waste <laughs> yeah. time with that yeah all right well that's uh that's it for me i uh don't have anything else. that's it for me uh you know the usual send off guys wear your mask over your fucking nose and uh we will see you on the know your rules podcast the very last thing i want to say as a sign off that i forgot is happy hanukkah it's the first month of uh all right all right hanukkah we're gonna oh yeah yeah we're gonna we're gonna light some candles here pretty soon uh sun's going down so it's any time after the sun goes down <laughs> um 
I was when I was a kid, like, you know, the sun in the winter, the sun will go down at like four thirty. So I literally right. come home and just like sit in the front and just be like, Mom, this is the sun, it's down. That's incredible. <laughs> so uh I have a little bit more patience now. <laughs> but uh but also I'm I'm like saying that and like I was excited to get like socks, you know what I mean? Because that that would be a gift for at least mm-hmm. a few days. <laughs> socks are like a pack of baseball cards um <laughs> but uh yeah happy hanukkah to everybody out there who is uh celebrating you know have a have a good time lighting those candles and uh celebrating each other and george there might be some latkes for you in your future because oh nice this is the time of year where i do that and me in. you convince me sign gotta, me up I'll, I'll bring some over to you yeah sign me up for that all right sorry i i extend i you signed off there and i i just extended it by two more minutes but uh with that, we will uh, say everybody stay safe and healthy, and uh, we'll be back with you soon. Absolutely. All right. We're out. Peace.